0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. You're not accustomed to hearing my voice. I'm Colin Hansen, Editorial Director of the Gospel Coalition and an Advisory Board of Beeson Divinity School. You're in for a treat today. We're turning the tables on the Beeson podcast. Dr. Timothy George, Dean of Beeson Divinity School, is usually the one asking the questions, but today I'm asking the questions. So we're going to cover a lot of ground, but thank you for being a willing participant in this, Dr. George. Thank you, Colin. I'm going to feel a little awkward here, but we'll give it a go. All right. Well, I'm sure, uh, this will be very interesting. We're, we're going to cover again, like I said, a number of different issues from inerrancy to Pope Francis. I know you have some interesting thoughts there. But I want to start in the beginning. You, you have a, a new updated release of your book on the reformers. I want to talk in, I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to ask you about the reformers' view of scripture. This is something that's been hotly contested for a long time, would you describe the Reformers' view as of the authority of Scripture as something that was fairly unified? And how did it relate to the views of scriptural authority that they inherited from the Roman Catholic Church.
0: Well, you know, we talk about the two great principles of the Reformation, sola scriptura, and then sola fide, justification by faith alone, the the material principle, and sola scriptura, the formal principle of the Reformation. So uh, I think this is a unifying theme among the various reformers in that they are appealing to the authority of God's Word written as the basis for doctrine, for teaching, and for living out the Christian life for worship, for everything they were doing. And even though they had very different interpretations of certain texts of the Bible, which led sometimes to even very strong divisions, like on the Lord's Supper, for example, between Luther and Zwingli, uh, there was a common font of inspired wisdom in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I just want to say in terms of the Catholics, it's also true that the Catholic Church had a very strong view of the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, in fact, that was not really a debate in the sixteenth century. It became a debate later in the eighteenth and nineteenth century uh, but there was this was this was common ground where they differed primarily was on the relative authority of scripture and tradition and how these two were to be understood together and separately and there, I think there was a major uh, parting of the ways, and we 're still working with that today.
1: Would you describe their view of biblical authority as Something akin to what we describe as inerrancy today? Yeah, now
0: inerrancy usually refers to the text of Scripture itself and to its uh, truth-containing capacity, that the Bible is truthful. The word I like to use rather than inerrancy uh, means the same thing, I think, is totally truthful. Uh, it's the totally truthful Word of God. What the Bible says, God says. What the Bible says happened, happened. Every miracle, every event, and every book of the Old and New Testament is altogether true and trustworthy. When I use the word inerrancy, that's what I mean. Uh, inerrancy, I think this view of Scripture was indeed held by the Reformers and also by the Catholic Church in the 16th century. This became an issue in the Enlightenment in the 19th century – when the rise of what we call modern critical, historical critical study of the Bible uh, began to put into question some of these truth claims of Scripture. And so the debates about the Bible that we have had both within evangelicalism and in the wider church since the 19th century reflect that development in Christian thinking. Tell us
1: about the updated uh, edition of your book on the theology of the Reformation.
0: Well, I wrote this book a long time ago. 25 years. This is the 25th anniversary revised edition to 25 years to bring out a new revised edition. I wrote this book originally during a sabbatical research year in Switzerland, which was a wonderful place to live when you were writing about the Reformation. So I'd get up in the morning. I lived near Zurich and take the bus into town and I would just, I was right there where all this stuff was happening. I'd take lunch and go look over the Limot River where Felix Monts was drowned to death in 1527 for being an Anabaptist. I would go into the Grossmünster where Zwingli and the the Zwingli uh, reformers would teach the Bible every morning. I mean, it was just wonderful. And so – uh but I, I wrote it rather quickly in the sense it was a one-year project, and I ran out of time and I ran out of space. And so I left out something rather important, and that is the entire English Reformation. Uh, Theology of the Reformers is really a profile of four major Reformers who stand at the headwaters of these various Reformed traditions, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and Minno Simons, the Anabaptists. Well, I went back in this new 25th anniversary edition and added an English reformer, and then the question was, which one? Because, you know, you could argue certainly for Thomas Cranmer, the, the great craftsman of the Book of Common Prayer, Richard Hooker, William Perkins, the Puritan, but I decided to go back to the headwaters of the English Reformation and include a new chapter on William Tyndale. I think Tyndale is a very overlooked and neglected figure, so much that happens in the English Reformation comes from him and his work. Of course, we remember him mostly as the great pioneer translator of the Bible into English. That will be forever his great legacy. But he also was a very significant theologian. And so what I try to do in this chapter was to put him in the context of the other reformers and to show how so many streams out of the English Reformation really go back to uh, William Tyndale.
1: That was a pretty significant time in your life to be releasing this book as well as starting Beeson Divinity School. How did you manage to keep it all together? Well, the book was
0: basically done. It was published in 1988, the year Beeson Divinity School was established. But it had been written pretty much and was ready to go by the time I moved to Birmingham. But yes, there was a lot going on in my life in those years. And I've often wondered, had I not come to Beeson in 1988, had I, at that time I was teaching at a Baptist seminary in Louisville, had I stayed there or gone somewhere else and as a teacher or a scholar, what might I have done in 25 years? I don't know. But in any event, I, there's no doubt that God, you know, had his hand on my life in bringing me here in 1988. I have no regrets about that. Uh, but, uh, scholarship and writing, you know, sometimes has to take a second st-
1: Stage to other issues happening around you. How would you say that our academic study and understanding of the Reformers has changed in those 25 years since you first published Theology of the That's Reformers? a really good question. And um, I would say
0: since 1988, uh, we have seen the ascendancy of what, mi- what might be called cultural Social, economic, political uh, interpretations of the Reformation, now of course these were there long before one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight but uh, they came in a way into a into a new kind of ascendancy within the field. And there's nothing wrong with any of these. In fact, I think we need all of these to understand the context, to understand uh, some of the development in the 16th century. Uh, But what I was trying to do in Theology of the Reformers, in a way, uh, harks back to an earlier period of historiography, which takes very seriously biography and which understands history to be very much involved with human persons, with their personality, uh, with their theology in the case of these reformers. And I wanted to bring that out in, in, a, in all of its uh, complexity, but also to show how these people really believe these things. They were moved by these doctrines and issues that sometimes seem to us today rather obscurantist and, you know, we've, we've, we're past all that. Who cares anymore about predestination or even justification? Well, these were life and death issues to the Reformers, and that was interesting to me. Why did they feel so deeply and strongly about that, and how did it impact the way they lived their lives as Christians and the way they led their churches in worship and service? Those were the questions that motivated me. I wanted to understand the Reformers from the inside out. I wanted to get inside their skin and inside their soul as best I could from the long distance that we are from the 16th century and understood what made them tick.
1: Well, you're also working on Reformation commentary on Scripture. I believe Acts is the the volume that's coming out now, or the most recent volume. What's your hope for the long-lasting effect of this Reformation commentary?
0: Well, the Reformation commentary on Scripture is a series of 28 volumes. We project 28. We have four out now. The fifth will be coming out soon. This builds on the great work that Tom Oden and his colleagues did in an earlier series called the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, both published by InterVarsity Press. Well, the ACCS, as we call it, the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture, mined the early church fathers, went through the Scripture to the canon in in kind of canonical order of the books of the Bible, but also really wanted to see what the various Reformers were saying, how they were interpreting. And so we thought, wow, what a great idea, but somebody should do that for the Reformation because the Reformation itself was a revival of early patristic theology in a sense. They're constantly appealing to the fathers along with the bible and so that was the genesis of uh, the rcs the reformation commentary on scripture i guess our hope this is not really for ivory tower academics Uh, they don't need this kind of resource but it is for pastors and teachers who are serious about the word of god who want to teach it faithfully and who want to read scripture in the company of the whole people of god through the ages so this is an exercise in reading along with the fathers, the reformers in this case, those who have come before us, seeing how they interpreted Scripture in their time in order that we might get some insight and illumination on how we should interpret the Bible today.
1: Let's zoom forward a number of centuries in history. Let's talk about um, the Battle for the Bible. Uh, you and I got to know each other first in the context of Christianity Today. We both serve in uh, various editorial capacities and have over, over the course of the last decade. Um, the Battle for the Bible, so named after a book written by Harold Lindzel when he was the editor of Christianity Today, published by Zondervan, forward by J, uh, or Harold John Akingay at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary at the time. The idea was that there is a battle for the Bible Uh, going on in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and a number of other places. And what he meant by the battle for the Bible was, of course, a battle for biblical authority. And part of that terrain was, was fought over. The What did the Reformers actually, what was their view of Scripture? Are we in continuity with that, or have we in some ways uh, tightened that up beyond what they even thought? That was why I asked you the question earlier about inerrancy. But my question is, as somebody who lived through that period, has been part of a lot of those debates, would you say that we're still fighting a battle for the Bible? Well, I want to say,
0: first of all, that I think that was an important and necessary battle. Uh, Now, it was fought, as most battles and wars are, with all kinds of skirmishes and tactics that uh, I think are distasteful, that maybe were unnecessary, and for which we should repent, we on both sides of that battle. A lot of terrible things were said about people. Motives were questioned. I don't approve of all those tactics. But I I do think that the issue itself, that is the issue of the authority, the inspiration, and the truth-telling character of the Bible. That's what inerrancy means. Are important issues for the church. Then they're important issues for the church today. Uh, when we when we turn to the scriptures, uh, can we really believe and rely on what is said there? Uh, let me give you an example. Um, not long ago, I was writing a little article on uh, the wise men and on the uh, slaughter of the innocents in the Gospel of Matthew, the Christmas narrative, infancy narratives of Jesus. Well, one way of interpreting a lot of that is to say. Uh, these are mythic stories that were made up um, by the church in a pious way, not in an attempt to defraud, or, but but in a pious way to reflect on uh, the legends about Jesus' birth, and they were then interpolated back into the scripture. That, in fact, is done, that technique is done with lots of stories in Jesus' life, not just the infancy narrative, but also his miracles. For example, the raising of Lazarus from the dead in in John chapter 11. Uh, Very often that's a post-Easter story interpolated back into the Gospel of John. This is what's often said. Well, it seems to me when we go in that direction, which is a way of reading Scripture, you might say deconstructing Scripture uh, in a kind of hypercritical way, um, that we lose something very precious and very important, even about the gospel itself. And if we keep going in that direction very far, what we turn out to be are Gnostics. We we turn out to understand the Christian faith to be uh, about some privatized religious experience, some connection we have with the ultimate divine, or, con- on a contrary view, uh, a set of – a code of ethics, a set of m- morality. What Christianity says is that in Jesus Christ, God has intervened in space and time. God has come among us as one of us, as a baby in a manger, as a man on a cross. And the warrant we have for believing and teaching and preaching that gospel is the Bible. And so if the Bible is not the totally truthful Word of God, then I think our apologetic and our evangelistic effort are going to fall very, very short. And we, in fact, uh, will not have very much to say to a world that already is imbued with this kind of skepticism. So that's why I think it's an important issue, even though the way it was fought and some of the things that were said and done, I can't approve of.
1: Well, here at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama, Probably the Southern Baptist Convention is the kind of the dominant denomination in this area, and certainly it's the one that you um, have been a part of and um that that's where the Battle for the Bible has come closest to our to contact with us so I'm wondering Beeson was founded originally as in a context where it was something of an evangelical haven within these this battle for the Bible raging all over the place. That battle has really died down since then in a lot of ways because the conservatives have wrestled control over the Southern Baptist seminaries. So I wonder, what is Beeson's role in our particular place in a context where that battle has shifted significantly and largely in the favor of those conservatives.
0: You know, by and large, at BESOM, we never really had a battle for the Bible. We just assumed the Bible was the totally truthful word of God, and we didn't you know, hire people who didn't believe that. And we got students who were committed to that. So by and large... That's been the history of Besus. So we haven't had a lot of the battle for the Bible because, uh, we, we didn't, uh, want to enter into that fray. We thought it was a settled question long, long ago, even before the SBC was formed. But I do think it's one thing to say we believe the Bible. And to say it in the strongest words possible, we want to use inerrant, infallible uh totally truthful, all these good words uh, it 's another thing I think then to understand how to interpret the bible how to how to take the Bible seriously in terms of its impact on our lives and our worship in other words uh, i i'm afraid i to say this i I'm, I'm sorry to say this. That I know a lot of churches where pastors and the people have a strong, strong belief in the Bible, and yet... The Bible functions in a very minimal way in the life and worship and preaching of that church. There may be a text taken, which is often out of context. It becomes a subtext for something else. And before long, you know, you're off on on some thematic sermon, and there's very little reading, public reading of Scripture, which the New Testament tells us to do. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So if Beeson has one kind of uh, emphasis it wants to make on the Bible, it's to bring the Bible front and center, not just in our theory and theology about it, but also in how it's taught, how we teach students to read and interpret the scriptures. Uh, based on the original languages, at Bison we require everybody to have a lot of Greek and a lot of Hebrew. If you're a prospective student and you don't want that, you should not come to Bison Divinity School. You will be very unhappy. We do that because we believe it's important for those who handle the Word of God to be able to engage it in the language in which God inspired it and caused it to be written down. And so we study the Bible deeply and seriously and with a view to, you might, we might say a Christocentric hermeneutic. In other words, we believe the whole Bible is the Word of God and therefore we want to read the Bible theologically and Christologically. If there's a hermeneutical principle, I think that would unify our faculty pretty much, that would be it.
1: Do you think much about what how to keep Beeson on this trajectory over the long term. You've taught in a variety of different contexts. Uh, You've studied in a variety of different contexts. As a a student of history, you know that seminaries often start and schools often start on a certain trajectory, but then they quickly veer off. Do you think much about how, if the Lord tarries, to to keep Beeson on that trajectory even after you're gone?
0: Well, the premise of your question is one that I resonate with a lot. A few years ago, there was a book written by the provost of the University of Notre Dame, James Birchdale, whom I've met, called The Dying of the Light. And he takes that idea, it's really a historical study of various uh, academic institutions throughout the country, and he shows how over time they've lost something of that original vision and really have turned in quite different directions. I'm a graduate of Harvard University. Uh, that's a prime example of that, founded in 1636 by godly Puritan leaders. And over time – and there was never any moment when the people at Harvard said, we want to repudiate that past. We don't like those old stuffy Puritans. Let's just do things that are avant-garde and modern. No, that never happened that way. It was over time slowly, drippingly, drip by drip, it happened so that now I think the people who founded Harvard in 1636 were they to come back there today, uh, they wouldn't recognize it if they would let them in the gate. How do you keep that from happening? That's your question. And I have thought a lot about that. And I'm not sure I'm happy with the answer I've come up with. And the answer I've come up with is that in an ultimate sense, you can't. I can't. You can't. No one person, no one school, uh, no one faculty can guarantee that for all time and eternity until Jesus comes, uh, this school will be pure and true. We can do what we can, and there are some things we can do. Uh, What we can do, I think, is to be sure the school has a strong, solid foundation, has a confessional foundation. Beeson Divinity School has a confession of faith that every single faculty member signs agreeing to teach in accordance with and not contrary to it. And that's a very serious commitment we make to one another and to our constituents and really to the, to the church at large. That's important. Uh, beyond these more formal kinds of structures that are there, I think uh, the combination of theological integrity and spiritual vitality One without the other will not do it. You can have theological integrity and be as theologically straight-arrowed as uh, Theodore Beza, just to pick a name out of the air, Uh, and still lose it all unless there is the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in your heart and in your church and in your school. So theological integrity and spiritual vitality. And so at Beeson, we put a lot of emphasis on what we call here spiritual formation, on prayer, on worship – on what we do together in the body of Christ, uh, that's just as important as the theological integrity. But you need them both. One without the other, I think, is an airplane
1: flying with one wing. Do you think it's easier, more difficult, about the same, to do this at an interdenominational seminary as opposed to a denominational seminary? They have similar and different challenges. Of course, a
0: denominational seminary is tied very directly to the governing denomination. And so depending on the fate of that denomination and the waves and the trends, that's going to have a direct impact on the seminary. That can be good or it can be bad uh, depending on what's happening in the wider at a place like Beeson, we're an evangelical interdenominational school. We have our charter documents. We have the the will of Mr. Beeson, which is almost our constitution that kind of sets our marching orders. We're also a part of Sanford University, which has its own board of trustees and its own structures of governance. And so in any of these structures, again, there's no absolute foolproof a guarantee that things are always going to go well in the way they should. So we have to make this a matter of prayer. I don't think every church should be exactly alike, I think, in the body of Christ. There's lots of room for diversity. Paul uses that wonderful Greek word that we translate multicolored, the multicolored wisdom of God. Uh, Well, I think we need the same sort of thing in theological education and in church life. Uh, Different churches have different placements, different callings, different moments, different contexts. God can use them all. I think our challenge is wherever we find ourselves, there to be faithful, there to be serious, and there to be committed uh, to the Lord God who gave us this work to do
1: we talk a lot around beeson about the interdenominational character and constitution of this seminary it really stands out uh, among seminaries around the around the country and the world and i think what's interesting we talk about um some people have negative associations with interdenominational because they think ecumenical and then they think back to the ecumenical early, mid-20th century things where a lot of conservative or or Bible-based belief that we've been talking about got wiped out in favor for a vague spirituality. But I'm wondering, now that we seem to be shifting, even in Birmingham and places like that, into more of a post-denominational structure – um, or assumptions where very few people stay in the same denomination, certainly not the same local church, from birth to grave, whether or not that interdenominational character of Beeson is going to be even a necessary asset for training ministers of the gospel because that's the field they're going to be entering where who knows who's going to show up in their churches, they're going to come from all different denominations or no denominations. Do, do, you think that's, do you think that post-denominational shift will put Beeson in an even more vital place for training ministers?
0: I think so. And let me say that this was not my idea. I was 100 percent for it because when I was a student at Harvard, I became very acquainted with Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. You mentioned Harold John Ockingay, who was the president of that school when I was a student at Harvard, had a great influence on me. So I was all in favor of it. But it was not my idea. It was Mr. Beeson's idea. And there are four words in his will that describe how he wanted this school to be – Christian, Protestant, Evangelical, and interdenominational – now, he grew up as a Methodist. Uh, he married a Baptist. They became Presbyterians. So he had something of this mixture of traditions in his own family, and he thought, uh, as he said several times, we we have something to learn from one another uh, about how to do the work of God. Now, uh, I'll make a couple comments on this. One is interdenominational at Beeson does not mean anti-denominational. Because I believe that God can and still does use denominations and that within every denomination that I know of, there are faithful men and women of faith that are seeking to do God's work in God's ways, sometimes against great odds, sometimes fighting uphill battles. Uh, But I I want to cheer those people on. I want to pray for them. I want to come alongside them and, and lift them up in whatever denomination they are. Now, there come times, I think, in people's lives where they say, I can no longer stay in this denomination because of this, that, or the other. And in conscience, they feel like they have to leave. Well, how could I be totally against that since I'm a Baptist and all of us Baptists left the Church of England back in the 17th century over conscientious scruples and struggles? So uh until that day when Jesus comes and all the spots are ironed out and all the wrinkles are gone from the body of Christ, then I think we're going to struggle with these divisions. The thing about being interdenominational I think allows us to focus on those core theological evangelical affirmations – that are reflected in all of the great confessions of faith that, by the way, we teach and take very seriously here at Beeson in all of our instruction and for all of our students, it allows us to dig deeply into those core doctrines and values and not to get lost in other important but not essential issues. So that may be a difference in a way between an evangelical interdenominational school and one that is tied to a particular denomination where sometimes the weeds just have to be stronger and longer in order to be that kind of church body. We're not. We're we're not against those, but we have a different and unique calling and a niche, if you want to call it that, in the body of Christ that may be providential for the moment in which we're living, as you suggested in your question.
1: Let's talk. We have a couple questions left, and I know that these are uh, issues that are near and dear to your heart. Let's talk about Pope Francis, um, Time Magazine's Person of the Year. The Advocate, a gay magazine, their Person of the Year. The New Yorker, put him on the cover as an angel. What do you make of this response to Pope Francis? Well, wow, I guess is one question. Who would have have thunk it
0: uh, a year or two or three ago that the the pope – would be on the cover of these magazines in a laudatory kind of way a couple of things about pope francis you got to say number one you got to love him anybody that says i don't want to wear those old fancy shoes just give me what people wear on the streets of rome Uh, i don't want to live in the apostolic palace i'm going to stay over here in the the guest house the bed and breakfast so to say of the vatican you just got to love that person that that grabs uh you know uh, people who are disfigured and kisses them and washes the feet of prisoners. I mean, that's Jesus-like, right? So who can't love that? In fact, um, I wrote an article soon after he was elected for Christianity Today called Our Francis Too, in which I said, sure, evangelicals ought to rejoice in this dimension of of Pope Francis. Now, uh There is another side to the story, of course, in terms of how he is portrayed, and particularly how some of his statements have been used and misused, i think misquoted uh and overquoted in in certain ways in order to pursue an agenda uh I don't blame him for that in the sense that you know he's number one he's not a theologian, he's a pastor. Uh, He's not a journalist. Uh, You know, he's been working at a church in Buenos Aires for most of his life, working with poor people. That's his passion. Uh, But at the same time, I think uh, in the office where he now has, he's in a very vulnerable position. Uh, And some of the statements he's made, I think, have been unfortunate. Some of the statements he has made uh, have certainly been misinterpreted and misused. And in fact, one interview that he gave, uh, has been taken down from the Vatican website because it was so uh, in- misinterpreted from the way that Francis says he intended it uh, when he said those words to the reporter. Now, I'm no Pope Francis, but I've talked enough to reporters, people like you, Colin, uh, <laughs> I <that> was <laughs> to know that you guys are pretty savvy and you can get us to say almost anything on most days. Well, so you got to be a little bit cautious. And so I think that will happen with Francis. I, I don't. You know, he's been pope less than a year. Let's give him another year, maybe two, and then it'll be time to sit down and and sort of think about how he's doing. It's too early, I think, at this stage, except to say he's brought a breath of fresh air to the Catholic Church, many of his reforms. I think I certainly applaud and wish him every blessing and being a spiritual presence where it's very much needed in the world today.
1: I've never seen conservative Catholics so confused. Though, what are they telling you? Well, I
0: think uh, many of them say just what I just said now, and that is that uh, I think the, the, the Pope has said some things that have not been very uh, well understood and interpreted.
1: And you're, and you're comparing them to Benedict XVI and Pope John Paul II, who, as far as our theological sophistication you indicate, is rather abnormal for papal history, Absolutely. Right?
0: These three popes you mentioned, uh, who I, I think uh, will be, all, each of them in different ways, remembered for many, many decades to come. John Paul II, who was a world revolutionary figure. I mean, there's just inc- you know, people will talk about him 400 years from now if the world still goes on. He was that great. Um, and not just within the Catholic Church, but in terms, of course, of the fall of the Soviet Empire, all of that. Benedict the 16th in my judgment is the greatest theologian to have become pope since the reformation and his writings are deep they're considered they're nuanced they're biblical pope francis uh is a pastor that's his and an evangelist that's his great gift He's not the theologian Benedict was. He doesn't pretend, I think, to be. He's not the world stage activist that John Paul II is. No one could be. But he has his own gift, and it may be just exactly what is needed in the church today. But less than one year into his uh, pontificate, I think uh, this is a time of seasoning, a time of introduction of him to the world. And at this point, I think we have to wait and see how all of this shakes down in terms of internal reforms and the impact that's going to have on other Christians.
1: The last issue I want to talk with you about is the Manhattan Declaration and talk about religious liberty. Um, it's, it won't be long before uh, we get a decision whether the, the discussion on Hobby Lobby and whether or not a business can have a conscience and be able to opt out of certain provisions for uh, requiring to, to give out abortifacients or to pay for abortifacients uh, under the terms of Obamacare. But um, one of the issues that's come up with Francis is that um, he doesn't appear to be interested in getting involved in these questions on marriage, speaking on traditional marriage or abortion or religious liberty, at least as we understand it in the West. Those are issues that have understandably preoccupied the American Catholic bishops um, for a number of years, certainly under President Obama's um, administration. So I'm wondering, in the context of, as a drafter of the Manhattan Declaration, do you think a time is coming where we need to exercise civil disobedience? The Manhattan Declaration was
0: the idea of Chuck Colson. Uh, he's in really the father of the Manhattan Declaration. Uh, he recruited me and my good friend uh, Dr. Robert George, Robbie George at Princeton University to help him draft this document which was released in 2009. And so uh, Chuck Colson was extraordinarily prescient. To see back in 2009, which seems in retrospect to be a long, long time ago, but it was only a few years ago. Look at wh- where we were then and where we are today. He saw it coming. And he said it's important for Christians to come together, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, to stand together and to speak out together on the three most pressing moral issues of the day. Not the only ones. But the most pressing moral issues of the day, the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death and marriage as God intended it to be, a lifelong covenantal union of one man and one woman and religious freedom for all peoples everywhere. And we developed an argument. It was a public argument we made as Christians, though, in the Manhattan Declaration for these three things. It closes with these words, maybe the most quoted words that you've alluded to. We will render unto Caesar everything that is Caesar's gladly, but under no circumstances will we render to Caesar that which is God's. And yes, I do think we are standing on the precipice of a decade of decisions that will need to be made by conscientious Christians, including those who've signed the Manhattan Declaration, as to how far we are allowed we – are, we are willing to allow Caesar to usurp the place of God. And, of course, we hope and we pray for a good decision from the Supreme Court on this issue, but we don't pin our hopes on that. Our call is not ultimately in a political sense. It's to be faithful to what God has called us to do and what in conscience we must do as followers of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the Manhattan Declaration continues to grow. Uh, We just had a board meeting a few weeks ago in New York City, and I think there are new plans emerging as this will be a continuing important vital witness on behalf of life
1: and marriage and freedom. Dr. George, thank you for, for leading us through uh, tumultuous times in many ways. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us on such a wide variety of topics. It's been fun for me to turn the tables on you in this podcast. And again, uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much, Colin. Thank you for listening to the in Podcast.